Good morning. Let's pray as we come into God's word that has caused us to be born again to a living hope as it comes alive in our hearts in new ways this morning. Lord God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we thank you that we are your children and that we are fed by your word and that you promise through the means of grace, through your church, through your word, to speak new life where there is nothing but death and destruction, which you have done for us. And we pray today, Lord, that you would do that again in our hearts in new ways, that you would help us to root out sin in our lives so that we might be more like you. God, to your glory and our great joy in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When it comes to really messy workspaces, you have two options. You have people who really clean a desk, and then you have people who sort of clean a desk. Do you know what I mean? If it, chances are, if you're married to someone who really cleans the desk, then you're going to be with someone who's also sort of cleaning the desk, and that's going to drive you absolutely bonkers. Now, here's the thing. I'm not gonna ask you which one you are today, and I'm not gonna tell you which one I am today, and my employers don't even know which one I am, but someday they'll find out, I'm sure. Here's, here's the thing. When you actually clean a desk, what do you do? We all know this. We take the trash off of the desk and we throw it in the bin, we organize the desk. But what if you sort of clean a desk? Well, what you do is you relocate the trash into the desk drawer, which has now eternally become forevermore a waste bin near to be opened again. Friends, sometimes the Christian life sort of feels like a sort of spirituality, an almost kind of Christianity. We're almost living the Christian life, but something's holding us back. We're externally clean, but inwardly, we're like a desk ju junk drawer. And we've got all sorts of stuff in there that we've just kind of let accumulate for a long time. Maybe we've even forgot about it. And the question becomes, shouldn't this be dealt with? Maybe someday, but how? Well, today, Second Peter wants to move us from a sort of spirituality to a spirituality in which our faith is fully formed by following through. And we can see this principle not only in 2 Peter, although that's where we'll look in the scriptures today, but we can see it across the whole arc of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. In the gospel, the promise to Ezekiel is fulfilled that the hearts of stones that we have encased in sin, encrusted over by sin, incapable of rightly loving God and rightly loving others. These hearts of stone, God by his spirit, shatters to give us new hearts that beat for him and for holiness. God gives us new hearts, but the fact of the matter remains, if we look inside of ourselves, it really feels like residual sediment of that former heart of stone is still inside of us. And these former fragments of the heart of stone make us feel like we can hide our sin behind these little stones in our heart. And so what I want to press us into today is by looking at 2 Peter, I want to show an antidote for that. First, we're going to look at how right standing with God puts us in a right relationship with God. That's where we're going to go first. 
Then we'll unpack how this right standing with God helps us to bear a family resemblance with God, rooting out all the hidden sins behind the fragments of stone, investigating those junk drawers in our hearts. And lastly, we'll conclude by not only looking at how we're made right with God and how we're made like God, but how our likeness to God exists for the sake of others, not just for our own personal holiness. So open, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 1, if you have your Bibles or your app or whatever you're using. The very first verse is quite significant. It says here, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, when you read something like this in the New Testament, it almost seems, it almost seems like you could gloss over it. Don't most New Testament letters start with this sort of a formality? It seems so. But when you glance at the larger scope of what's happening in 2 Peter, the fact that Peter points to his apostleship is very, very significant. And we should not just gloss over it. You see, in this letter, Peter is dealing with a problem in the church at Rome. The problem in the church is you've got all these untrained instructors, people who are ignorant about the Bible, who emerge from within the church and they start teaching error. And the particular error, if you look through 2 Peter, and we're going to do that over the next five weeks, is that these leaders are saying there is no final judgment. There is no final judgment. It's almost like they're saying, look, Christians, just relax. Stop all the fear-mongering and the fire and brimstones. There are no restrictions. There's only love. After all, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. So put down the brimstone, grab a couple of beers, and sit back and relax and sin boldly. This is sort of like an anachronistic way of saying what was happening in this church. That's a bit of a stretch, but the essence of that error is, I think, still alive with us today. And as we, as we go through 2 Peter, I just want you to be aware that if in your heart you feel, gosh, God's judgment seems harsh, right? And in your heart you're saying, I love justice, but God's judgment seems harsh. I wish I could have the justice without the judgment. Ask yourself, and I get where that's coming from, but ask yourself, is that the kind of society that you'd want to live in, even on earth? A society where just judgment is done away with, so total freedom can reign. Is that actually freedom? Is that actually just? So if you're feeling that in your hearts, that's okay. But we want to make sure we reckon with the text, and if the text leads us to a God who's both just and a just judge, that's a good thing for the name of justice. just want to put that out there for you. So Peter's apostleship is important because what is being denied is essentially a core aspect of the gospel. Now, we look at Peter's letter as a letter, but we have to remember if we read later chapters 10 and further in the first chapter of 2 Peter, Peter reveals that it's actually a last will and testament. It's not merely a letter to a church, it's his last will and testament. He, Peter reveals Jesus has told him that soon his death is coming. And so what Peter wants to do is take the essence of the gospel and say, if you want to know the true gospel, if you want to know the authentic truth about Jesus, 
It certainly includes judgment and it definitely calls Christians to walk in holiness in obedience of life. And here Peter is really in lockstep with the apostle Paul when he says that we are saved by faith in the righteousness of God in Christ. Now we're Christians, many of us, and we've heard this kind of language for a long time. It's easy again to breeze over, oh, faith, yes, I have that. The righteousness of Christ, yes, I have that as well. I wanna dig into those two verses because Peter's response to error in the church is to remind them that we are made right with God. How are we made right with God? Well, first, Peter says, we have obtained a faith in 2 Peter 1.1. We've obtained a faith. What does that mean? Well, the word behind obtained is, is really more like we've received the faith as a gift. We've been appointed to receive faith. Faith is not something we generate on our own and can be proud of ourselves for having. It's the gift of God that he works by a miracle in your heart. And this is really, really good news. Because if salvation relied on our own fleeting faith, then our assurance would only be as strong as our personal willpower. Our own personal willpower would be the basis of our faith's assurance, and that's not a good place to land. But Peter says later in verse 10 that actually the person who has faith and who is living a holy life will never fall away. Did you hear that? Later in 2 Peter, he says, if you're living out these qualities of faith, you'll never fall away. Well, what does that mean? Again, to get down into the depths of the word, we come up with a translation here that would be pretty absurd if you put it in a Bible translation. Nobody would want to read what's actually in the Greek here. I know that sounds geeky, but trust me, it's good. What the verse is actually saying is, the person who has faith and who is living out that faith by walking in holiness. This is if you literally translate it, it would say, will never, ever, certainly under any circumstance, ever fall away. Isn't that powerful? God not only gifts us with faith, but he perseveres us in the faith. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it, look, if you're wondering, life is tough. Faith is tough. I have a lot of questions about the faith. And if you're wondering, maybe I'm not strong enough to keep the faith. You ever thought that? You're not strong enough to keep the faith. But God is strong enough to keep you in the faith because the one who blessed you in the beginning with salvation will keep you till the end, not by the power and the prestige and anything else of your own faith, but by his own abiding perfect faithfulness. God gifts you with faith and God perseveres you with faith. God is the author and the perfecter of your faith. But faith in what? You got a lot of people today who say, I am a person of faith. Faith in what? Well, Peter says right here, encapsulating the primary message of the gospel in the midst of some heresy that's crushing the church, he says, faith in the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God. Now, righteousness is used all throughout the Old Testament. It's used all throughout the New Testament can mean all sorts of different things. But here, the essential thing it means is right relationship with God. Right relationship with God. 
God, who we were in a wrong relationship with, who we were at enmity with, declares us to be in the right, in right relationship, righteous. And this is by his grace alone. But even here as Christians, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you might say, I'm righteous in Christ. We have this idea sometimes that I want to address. This idea that, well, I'm really a sinner, but God just pretends I'm righteous. Like, have you ever seen those old cartoons when there's someone running away from the police or something and then all these painters come by with a door? Just, they happen to be walking by with a door and the person who's trying to escape is behind the door and they sort of sneak by and they get to the other side. We sort of think of God, that God's going, I'm not seeing this. I'm not seeing this end. You're past the pearly gates. Welcome home. Party time. God does not Pretend that you are righteous. God pronounces you righteous. And when he does this, it's not because he swept sin under the rug. It's because Christ has borne our sin in his body on the tree. When God doesn't pretend that you're righteous, but pronounces that you're righteous, it's on the basis of the punishment that's been borne by Jesus on your behalf, on his shoulders. It's not pretend, it's not make-believe, it's real. And it came at a cost, which is the blood of God's only son. Thanks be to God that it doesn't land on us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If you're a Christian, it's not the judgment disappeared into thin air. It's that the judgment fell on him in your place. It fell on him. But this right relationship with God is where we, sometimes we Christians will say, I am right with God, hallelujah. But I didn't sign up for the holiness package. Those are the really serious Christians. That's a little bit weird, a little bit too much. I would like the bronze uh, package, not the gold package. This is too much. Um, I have some bad news for you, if that's what you're going to want to sign up for the gold package, okay? I can tell you how to do that because Peter tells us how to do it. Faith in Christ makes us right with God so that we can be made like God. He doesn't stop with right relationship. He brings us into the fully formed faith of Christ. Read in verse three. Here's the, here's the pattern that we see. God conforms us to the image and likeness of Christ. That's the first thing he says. And this path to Christ's likeness is through the knowledge of God. We're gonna come back around to that in a minute. When we follow this path of the knowledge of God, then we become partakers of the divine nature. Should we just stop there? Everyone understands that? I mean, this stuff is dense, is it not? Let me summarize it this way. God is saying, you are not the product of a legal fiction. You, through Jesus the Son, have become part of a real spiritual family. You're not independent contractors, your covenant children of God. Isn't that amazing? That's the gospel here. That's the gospel. Now here's the problem though. When we look at this, we can say to ourselves, okay, that makes sense. I'm a partaker of the divine nature, but go to the coffee shop with other Christians or people who have never heard of Jesus and say, I am a partaker of the divine nature. It's probably going to be a weird conversation and no one's going to understand what you're talking about. Then try to sit down with your son or daughter or grandchild and say, we are partakers of the divine nature. 
You want to have dinner now? They're not going to understand, right? We mature Christians don't understand. So what I did really for, for my own sake and for my kids' sake was I wrote a paraphrase of 2 Peter from the Greek as if I were going to read it to my children, which I've been trying to do. And if anyone's interested in using that, I could pop it through on email to you. Um, and so I'm going to read, instead of trying to unpack this in verbose theological terms, here's what I think knowing God and leading to the divine nature means. So here's what I would write in a children's paraphrase. Hear this. And if you are a children, I'm, I'm speaking to you if you're a child right now. Not only does God make us right with Jesus, he also gives us everything we need to live now and forever from his own God power. We get connected to God's power through getting to know him. Have you ever noticed that when we get to know people in our lives, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, teachers, stuff like that, we start to act like them a little. We start to become like them. People might even say, you're a lot like your father. Well, as we come to know God, our father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we become little sons and daughters of God. And we start to become like God, little by little, as we get to know him more. You go, that's good for a child. That's good news for me. And I'm 41 years old. Knowing God is not just about knowing about God. It's about knowing him as a person and being transformed into the likeness of God. And, you know, one of the things about TFCA that made me want to hop on a plane and take a crazy plane ride from Australia over here, which is an excruciating thing that took two and a half weeks somehow for me to wake up from in terms of the time zone. I'm okay now. It's this abiding sense that this is a church that cares about the serious pursuit of the knowledge of God according to his word. That's the legacy that comes from generations in this place, in this people, and God willing will go on for generations to God's glory. One of the things though that we have to be careful of, even as people who are deeply concerned with right knowledge about God, is that we're following the track that Peter says. What is the point and purpose of this knowledge? Where is this knowledge leading us to? Is this us just collecting theological factoids? Well, I had this amount when I was 40, and now I'm 80, and I have way more. Are we like collecting theology baseball cards? Right? No, we're not doing that. But what is, what is the reason? Have you ever thought about why do we go deep in the word? Why do we continue to submit ourselves to know him? It's because knowledge of God, knowledge about God, leads to a personal knowledge of God. I know a lot of things about a lot of people. It doesn't mean I know the person. You know what I mean? I might know your birthday. I might know where you live. But knowledge about leads to a deeper knowledge of. And what we want to do is not turn theology itself into an idol, but rather that theology and knowledge from the Bible would be a means to a greater end. Not just knowledge about the idea of Jesus, knowledge of him, the person, not just the proposition. The propositions lead us to him. Without them, we can't get to him. But if we stop at them, then we might turn theology into an end in itself. The foundation of salvation is righteousness by faith in Christ. The fruition of salvation is likeness 
with God. And the last point is this, this likeness with God is meant to lead us to follow in the way of Christ by loving others. You know, verse five lists a whole bunch of different Christian virtues. In that sense, it's kind of like Galatians five and the fruit of the spirit or the Beatitudes. We're not gonna go through each one of them now, but what I want to point out is that the point that Peter's making is not that we are to be seeking these virtues solely for ourselves as sort of self-absorbed spiritual bodybuilders, just obsessed with our own holiness at the expense of rather than for the sake of others. Just a solo sanctification project. No, what Peter's actually calling us towards is a fully formed faith that redirects our gaze away from ourselves toward God and toward others. Then the virtue that we seek will be built up as we pour ourselves out for others. And you might say, well, where do you see that, John? Is this just something you're coming up with because you like, I do like the way it sounds. And I think it sounds like Jesus, but I'm not reading it into the text. Verse five, there's a little word in there in Greek, and it's usually translated in the NIV and the, NIV and the ESV, make every effort. It's like make every effort to live virtuously and steadfastly, all these things. Make every effort. But what that word actually means, if you look at the actual meaning of the original language, is personal moral excellence with an optimum devotion to others. That's what the word means. Now, if you put that in the, Greek, in the English translation, it would just sound too verbose. But isn't that interesting that Peter is saying, make every effort with the optimum devotion to others to be holy, right? It's not a summa cum laude sanctification trophy for me at the end. It's about the others-centered way of service. And I grow when I fix my eyes on others and not on myself. There's a lot of other stuff out there, podcasts that will tell you, here's how to be a good man. Here's how to be a good person. How to build yourself up. That's not bad, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is not first how I build myself up. It's how you are built up when I pour myself out. And that's what Peter's saying in this passage. But John, that's an abstract principle. You're a former seminary teacher, always in the clouds. Some truth to that. But let's take it down to the bottom level here. What does this actually mean? What does it mean to live like that? We'll, we'll look at one example. The word Philadelphia in Greek here, which is translated brotherly affection. What does it mean to live out Christ's love in a way of brotherly affection? And, and this word has a sense of treating people who are not part of your family like they belong in the warmth of your family, like they're part of your family. What does it look like to do that? Well, it looks like brotherly love, flying over from Australia and having random congregants from the church that you're just joining, whom you've never met, invite you to live at their house for a month and a half while you find your feet in a new place. Does that sound like something you go, that's easy, I'll do that. <laughs> it looks like another person volunteering to let us use their car while we go and seek to find a good deal on a used car and take our time to do that, which also happened 
here. Brotherly love. Brotherly love looks like holding a series of worship events at a park over a hot summer and acting out the gospel with the youngest children of the church week after week when you could be doing something else and then finishing up the evening together, building community over popsicles. That's brotherly love. Sometimes brotherly love is even, is even a little bit more conventional. Like inviting someone to have, this happened to us as well, inviting someone to have New York pizza from the Italian store in Arlington, that is a plug. <laughs> New York style pizza from the Italian store in Arlington after you've had something quite inferior in a different continent for at least half a decade. That's brotherly love. You know what a, a large pizza is in Australia? It is like an English muffin with a little tomato paste on it. Friends, that is not gourmet. That is not sophisticated. That is just downright cruel. And it is not brotherly love. Look, I can tell you honestly that when people behave that way to me, I'm shocked. It's not my first impulse to go, I would do something like that big or small. I think about doing stuff. I almost do stuff. I'm sort of a Christian, sort of, but I want to really be a fully formed Christian. Amen. I don't want to be a sort of spiritual person. I want to be a fully formed son of the living God. And that's what Peter calls us to. He's like, I've made you right with God. Don't try and make yourself right with God. I've made you right with God. Praise him. I've made you right with God so you can be made like God. And when you're made like God is when you're drawing close to the beating heart of Jesus in someone else. Not curving in on the former stones of the heart that's been fully crushed by God's weight of glory, but that still resides as a residual sediment in you. Not almost, actually. I want to wrap up by saying this. True faith in Christ does not produce sort of Christians. It produces fully formed saints. This faith puts us in right relationship. Yes, this faith makes us like God, but it also calls us to pursue him in others. Search your heart. Here's what I want to ask you to do this morning. You're here now and God is here now. And we are together. Search your heart. Go into the deep recesses of your soul this morning. Go into the junk drawer of your heart where you've been stuffing all that stuff from the top and saying, oh, I'll deal with that some other time. Deal with it now. Deal with it now because here's the fact of the matter. We cannot smuggle sin into the kingdom behind former fragments of the heart of stone. We can't do it. Even the residual sediment of sin is too heavy a weight for anyone to harbor, even for one evening, never mind for an eternity. And it is not your weight to bear. It is not your weight to bear. He has already borne that weight. He has already paid that price in the death of Jesus Christ. He has already destroyed those sins that are sneaking inside of you and hiding. He's destroyed their ability to shame you. He's destroyed their ability to condemn you. Today is a day for us to relinquish something. To leave something behind so that we can more freely and fully follow Jesus. I tell you the truth, God will leave no stone unturned. 
in the salvation of his people, including the ones that we try to hide behind in our own hearts. Bring those stones out and cast them at the feet of Jesus and anything that's behind those stones. And he will fully form you into his image, not only for your own sake, but for the sake of the world. That changes lives, it's changed you, and he wants to fully change you into the completion of his image by the power of his son. This is the gospel that we follow. Let's pray. Lord God, we have no words left to speak when we look at what you've done in Christ. If we look within our own hearts, we don't find solutions, but we find more brokenness. And when we try to resource our brokenness with brokenness, we fall short. And so we ask you today, God, to speak new life into us, to reveal those things in us that we've hidden and tried to smuggle into the kingdom. Take that heaviness away, for you have borne it in the blood of your son on his shoulders in our place. And so we turn to you again, make us like little children who partake of the divine nature as we come to know you more in each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.